very much. Uh, I live in New York. Uh, not long ago, I was walking on 3rd Avenue in New York, near where my apartment is, and I happened to look up, and there were two women in very deep conversation walking toward me. And as they got closer, I saw that one of them was holding a book down here. And as they got closer still, I saw that the book that this woman was holding was a book that I had written. And I have to tell you, it's kind of a neat feeling when you see that. And uh, they were coming this way, and I was going this way, and we came abreast of each other. I can't think what got into me to do what I did, but as we were at this point, I said, excuse me, and they stopped and they looked at me, and there's this awful moment there, and I, thing, and I said, um, I wrote that book. <laughs> and these two ladies looked at me like this, and they looked at each other, and she looked down at the book, and she turned it over, and she looked at my picture on the back of the book, and she looked back up at me, and she said, so what? <laughs> and of course she's perfectly right, so what is right. At any rate, I am a late-life writer. I had a late-life change of uh, career. For many, many years, it wasn't brief at all, I was in both t uh, television and I was a, uh, a, a, an executive, a vice president of a Hollywood studio. I was also a um, uh, Hollywood uh, producer. And my career in uh, show business began when I was the stage manager, what they used to call the floor manager in live television, of the Howdy Doody show, and um, it's a famous show for kids. And my uh, career in films more or less ended when I was the producer of one of Elizabeth Taylor's films called uh, Ash Wednesday. And along the line, I mean, uh, I had a wonderful time during all those years, and I also had a rotten time uh, as the years went on. And, um, uh, but there was this, I'm a great believer in the inner voice. I, I do think that we are told an awful lot inside, and I believe in listening and or at least I have grown to believe in um, listening. And there was always this little voice saying to me, this isn't it. This isn't it. Meaning what I was doing with my life. That there was more that I could get out of myself than what I was getting. 
And then an extraordinary thing happened in Hollywood that had nothing whatever to do with me except that I knew all the principles involved in this story, which I'm going to tell you very quickly. But it had a profound effect uh, on the change that came about in my life. Some of you may remember this story. I'm going to go over it very, very quickly because I don't want to... Uh, I know the Hollywood people here will all know the story. Uh, in 1978, the head of a studio in Hollywood for reasons known only to himself, forged a check in the name of a Academy Award winning actor. The check was for the amount of $10,000. And um, the man was the head of a studio, extremely highly paid. Why he did this is beside the point of this um, um, uh, story. Uh, the uh, actor found out about it when, when he got a tax form at the end of the um, year and he began to investigate. There were all these whispers through Hollywood about this. There was never anything in the newspaper or there wasn't for the longest time and um, so forth. At the same time, the wife of the man who had forged the check wrote a book, or, and, um, which was a shopping guide for rich women, a ludicrous book, called New York on $1,000 a Day Before Lunch. <laughs> now, Hollywood has never been a place where writers are held in the, you know, we're not up there in the highest level, and so forth. And, but there was a book party for New York on $1,000 a day before lunch, which I attended, and the entire power structure of Hollywood turned out for this party. Studio heads and wives, top producers, and it occurred to me, and something that has become a theme in almost everything I have written, that when a powerful person is in trouble, the ranks close around that person to protect him. At that time, as I said, there was nothing in the papers at that time. And at that time, uh, two reporters from the Washington Post arrived in Hollywood. The wife of the actor had gone to uh, Kay Graham and said, this is what is happening out there. No one will write about this, so forth. Kay Graham sent these two guys out, and through some fluke or some coincidence, I have a life that is filled with uh, uh, coincidence, it turned out that one of these reporters recognized me in the lobby of the Beverly Hills Hotel. He had been the roommate at college of one of my brothers, and uh, so forth. And he told me what he was doing and um, so forth. These are the two guys who finally broke the story. And for 10 days, I kind of hung out with these two guys. And I, they were investigative reporters. And I watched them. I watched them, what they did and what they did and how they went about and how they got the story. And I got a charge. I got an excitement that I had lost in the picture business or in the TV.
And, uh, and uh, I thought, I could do what these guys are doing, you know, and so forth. And I also knew that as a Hollywood studio person or a Hollywood producer, I was never going to be a George Lucas or a Francis Coppola or a Barry Diller or a Michael Eisner or a Sid Scheinberg. I wasn't going to be, you guys got a very classy group here from Hollywood, I want to tell you, all these fellows who are here, but I was never going to be anything more than a B-level producer. And, and yet I knew there was something in me that I had that I hadn't found yet. And if you have that feeling about yourself, that you think there's something that you can do and do, and you go after it, pursue it, hang on to it, grab it, tackle it, but stick with it, because one day it's going to come to you. Now, I also, as has been announced here, had a bit of an alcohol and drug problem at the same time, in which had sort of screwed up my marriage and my thing and all those things. And so, um, anyway, one day... I changed my whole life. Just overnight, I ended one life and started another. I moved away from Hollywood. I didn't know where I was going to go. I went and I lived in a one-room cabin in the Cascade Mountains of Oregon. God knows why I picked there, and, uh, but I did, and it was an extraordinary experience. I mean, the experience of being alone, 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 of, be, of, of having to come to a realization about yourself, that the reason it didn't work out was not because that agent did this, did this, did this, that I had brought all this that happened to me upon myself, that I was the creator, the instigator, the playwright of the failure that I brought about. But while I was there, I began writing my first novel. And the novel was published. And the novel dealt somewhat, to a degree, as all my novels have subsequently dealt with a reality. There was a truth at the, at the base of them. And I dealt somewhat with this forgery case. And the book came out, and it was just, I can't tell you what a flop it was. It was just an enormous flop. It got the most awful review in the New York Times. It was, it was mocked and so forth and so on. And I am an easily hurt, sort of sensitive type person. And guess what? I said, I know I'm doing the right thing. I know. I knew. For the first time in my life, I felt like I was going to be where I was supposed to be. And I kept after it. My editor on that book was an absolutely wonderful man 
who is no longer my editor but has remained my friend, and that is Michael Corda. And Michael Corda, bless his heart, had liked that flop book. And he said to me, you know, Dominic, you know all these fancy people everywhere. He said, there is nothing that the public enjoys reading about more than the rich and the powerful in a criminal situation. And all of a sudden, like bells went off in my head. And, and, uh, and uh, in that single line, my whole second career was made. I mean, I knew when I heard it that that was what I was supposed to hear. Uh, out of the, after that, my next book was The Two Mrs. Grenvilles, which was based on a shooting, society shooting that had taken place in Los, in, uh, on Long Island, excuse me, in the uh, uh, 50s, and uh, where a showgirl from the wrong side of the tracks married into one of the great American families where she was hated by the mother of the man she married and by the sisters, and she ultimately shot and killed this heir that she had married and so forth. And the mother-in-law and the sisters who had hated her stood by her so that a, the case would not have to go to trial. And again, it was closing ranks, it was using power, it was keeping the police at bay. These are all things that interest me. That book, I'm not bragging or anything, but that book, Hardback and Soft, sold two million copies. And in fact, Merv Adelson, sitting over here, I just remembered this, uh, bought it and made an incredibly successful miniseries out of it. During that time, I met an extraordinary woman who really had a major effect in my life, and that is Tina Brown. Tina Brown, at the time that I met her, was a young English woman, totally unknown, who was in New York. She had been the editor of an English magazine called The Tatler. She was in New York uh, visiting. I sat next to her at somebody's house for dinner one night. And uh, I had just got into this incredible conversation with this woman. And uh, she wasn't famous. She wasn't anything. I, you know, I had to say again, what was your name? You know, and, and so forth. And the next day, she called me. And she asked me to have lunch with her. And so, so I did. And uh, she said to me, you know, you shouldn't waste all those Hollywood stories of yours at dinner parties. She said, you should be writing for a magazine. And this was at the time of my first flop book. And I said, writing for a magazine? I just wrote my first book, and it's this big flop. I wouldn't know how to write for a magazine. And she said, yeah, but I could teach you how. It happened at that time. Oh, what she told me also was that the reason she was in New York 
was that she was shortly going to become the new editor of Vanity Fair magazine. Now, even at that time, that was not that big a deal because Vanity Fair was sort of a flop magazine at the time. It was she who turned it into the triumph that it eventually um, uh, became. At that very time, I had had a terrible tragedy in my own life. Um, I had had a daughter who had... Um, who was uh, murdered. And uh, I was about to leave for California the next day to attend the trial of the man who had killed my child. And she said to me, you know, I don't want to be, I know what's happening in your life. I know you don't want to talk about it. She said, but keep a journal. Keep a journal every day. Write down what's happening to you. And she said to me later, you know, we've all read about trials. She said, but I don't think I've ever read about a trial written by a major participant in a trial. And out of that journal that I kept came my first story, which was called Justice. Because I was so horrified by what I saw in the courtroom at that trial. And that story was published in her first issue as editor of the magazine. And it made, it, it made me realize then the power that we writers have. Uh, the, the, uh, the article became read in, uh, in law schools and so forth. It, just to sh it showed how, when, when, a, when a trial goes wrong, what can happen. In the years that I worked I have worked, and I still am, at Vanity Fair. I have covered the trials. I, I only deal in the high-profile trials, which I could talk about for six hours without stopping, and I won't, of course. And I am presently writing a book on that. I've written four articles on that. I'm going back to cover the second trial. I will probably, almost certainly, also be covering the O.J. Simpson trial. In my novels, what I wanted to do is I wanted a wide audience. And my novels are glamorous, about rich people, about powerful people. They are entertainments. But in every one of them, there is a subtext of morality. They are stories of right and wrong. Some people never get down to that. They only deal with the, with the top part. Oh, is this character based on so-and-so? That's fine with me. But a lot of people now realize that what they are are morality tales. What I am so appalled at now, which is happening in the court system of America, is the abuse excuse. What is happening? I am not responsible for this rape. I am not responsible for this murder. I am not responsible for this massacre. Nuts. And I, morality, 
have come to see during this uh, uh, trial in Van Nuys, California, morality, truth, ethics counted for nothing. It was all about winning at any cost. And I am going to continue to voice my opinion as loud, as loud as I can write to, uh, to help fight this. And I'd like to tell you people, you young people, that you are an extremely impressive group and I feel honored to have been asked to speak to you. Thank you very much.